Welcome to Geek on Film with your hosts, Robbie Holmes and John Hoche. Howdy, folks. Uh, welcome to episode 28 of Geek on Film. I'm Robbie. Hey, I am John. Thanks for being here. Um, we're excited. This week, we're going to talk about uh, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, return to form. Some people are saying uh, the knock at the uh, knock at the cabin uh, as our main review. But uh, as John noted before we got started, I-, I was on a tear this week. I was trying really hard to catch up on uh, all the films I needed to see for the Oscars. Uh, I'm trying desperately to make it to Oscars night with zero films left that have been nominated that I've I haven't watched. Robbie watched all the movies of of all time. There is not a single movie that he hasn't watched now. It's uh, it's been a week for sure. Uh, let's start off a little bit with some television. Uh, I just want to mention a show that I was really impressed with. Uh, Gaslit is something that my wife and I started watching like a week and a half, two weeks ago. We've made it through the first three episodes. It is the story of Martha Mitchell. And uh, how she was a part of and the story around her life uh, being married to uh, the attorney general of the U.S., uh, who was the right hand of Nixon and uh, how outspoken she was. But it's Julia Roberts getting a chance to really cook in a role. Um, And her husband is played by Sean Penn. And he, again, has gone through a crazy transformation. He does not look like Sean Penn. Um, This show is amazing. Like, I. It's been nominated for Emmys. I expect it to be nominated for more. Like, I, I don't know that this show. I think it's. I think it's a single season or a mm-hmm. limited series. Um, if it, if you haven't watched it, I would say it is something to put on your radar. Cool. Um, I think we have five episodes left. I'm just looking at the uh, other people in the cast. I'm a huge Dan Dan Stevens fan. I think he's a great actor. Yeah. Uh, and Betty Gilpin is in it also. Uh, apparently, so that's great too. I love her yeah. as well. Um, Betty Gilpin is really great. Uh, she is um, so Dan Stevens plays John Dean and Betty Gilpin is a uh, beautiful stewardess that he meets mm. uh, and is sort of put off by his like, you know, how conservative and uptight and Republican he is. And then she sees through and he's she thinks she sees him as a better person. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's a really charming. Uh, she's really great in this. Uh, Dan Stevens is fantastic is like a dump like the the thing that we keep going through in this show that my wife keeps saying is like I can't believe they these dummies they they're all so dumb like every right. aspect of this is like it, is falling down on every aspect of the plan right like they the way they get caught the way it's just there's no competency in how they're trying to accomplish this mm-hmm. um, and I think you know it's it's a little farcical in the way that they're pulling this up but uh, it doesn't sound that far off <laughs> Right on. Um, yeah. How is this as an episodic? Uh, it's been really good. It's been really good. So the the show is called gaslit because, um, there is this, uh, so the story is that Martha was extremely outspoken and I'll talk about this a little bit more. I watched the short about her that's nominated this year. Mm. Um, and so she's this outspoken voice, uh, from within the Nixon campaign mm-hmm. as one of the, you know, wives of one of the men in the campaign. And so she did all these, like she did tons of television interviews. Uh, she was kind of notorious for picking up the phone and calling reporters and, and being honest, like, have a couple drinks and then call a reporter and, and, and dish a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of consternation about whether or not uh, she was a problem um, in the documentary. Uh, they, 
they talk about the fact that like over a hundred hours of Nixon's conversations, uh, and, and she's mentioned like 88 times in those hundred hours. Like she was a problem for Nixon and for, uh, Watergate and for the, you know, just for, for the entire cabinet, there was a lot of chaos that she sowed by being public and, and honest and, uh, sometimes coming out in, in opposition to what Nixon's stance was as a, uh, as a president. And, mm-hmm. uh, so they, they try really hard to make it sound like she's gone. She's got like mental issues or she's, she's not well. Uh, so that's why I think the show is called gaslit. We haven't gotten to that point where that aspect has happened, but it, it really did happen in her life where they publicly try to smear her and blame her for a lot of things. Hmm. Don't think I'd check it out. It's on stars, right? Yes. And it's I think if you uh, have... pretty great, honestly. Yeah. And I'm just kind of scrolling around. If you, if you do have Amazon Prime, you can watch the first episode on Amazon Prime for free. So you can check at least episode one to see if you if you want to continue on. Let's jump over to Last of Us, buddy. Uh, uh, I think we were up to episode three. Uh, how how are, how are you feeling? Are you okay? Um, <laughs> yeah. At, so at a, at time of recording, uh, episode four hasn't aired yet. But man, everyone is talking about episode three, and um, and. And rightfully so. Um, So we've talked about Last of Us where it's kind of the new, it's the new thing that everyone's talking about where it's a, it's a a TV show based on a video, a very popular video game for the PlayStation uh, console. And it's a post-apocalyptic world uh, where people get infected by a fungus and they become zombie-like. Um. And it's about, you know, people dealing with people being shitty and stuff. And yeah. the, the so the interesting thing about episode three that everyone is talking about is, you know, um, you know, I'm hearing a lot that it's like this is one of the best. This is one of the best uh, episodes of television in all of history. I haven't been around for all of history, <laughs> but. Uh, and I think that like I. I, I I get the vibe. I get that vibe. I think I need to watch it a couple more times to like get fully blown away. But uh, it's super impressive. It's it it it, it, it so not, it strays away from the the main storyline, at least so you think. And we follow um, we follow um, uh, Nick Offerman playing playing Bill, and he's kind of like a. a he doesn't use the the term, but he's like a doomsday prepper. He's got a bunker. He's got, you know, like closed circuit recording devices and everything. And, and right. And, and very smartly. So because what happens in last of us is uh, the army brings people to quarantine zones. But if they, if the quarantine zones get filled, I'm spoiling a bunch of stuff, but I, I don't <laughs> think it changes. It won't change your, your viewing experience. But um, you know, like the thing, the, messed up thing that the armies did was like if 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 the quarant if you if the quarantine zones were filled they didn't want to leave people to be fodder to get infected and become you know flesh-eating fungus zombie people so they just killed them all so like you in the beginning of the the episode you're walking past like an open grave where there's just a bunch of skeletons yeah Uh, and i think that at that point you're still following uh, Ellie and Joel's character. 
Uh, but they did this really interesting thing where it's like they you they show a skeleton with a with a like a deteriorating shirt and there's like a very distinct fabric on it. And they zoom into the fabric and we instantly jump I think 10 10 or like 10 or more years back. Yeah. Yep. to the initial outbreak and we follow this character Bill around. Now he's set up an uh, he's set up really well in his house. He hides as um the army is uh, getting everyone out of the town. He's got like a he's got like a a sub sub basement. So he's hiding underneath his basement. You can hear the army going through his whole house and looking for him. They don't find him, so they leave. And then he's left to his own devices. And he he he's like happy as can be because he can turn on the power plant. He can raid the nearest Home Depot, and then. He's super happy. And yeah. then after years, 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 uh, he meets Frank, played by uh, Murray Bartlett. Yep. And and then we get a, a beautiful story that goes on uh, until until we, we catch up. We finally catch up at the end with Joel and Ellie. Um, it's a, it was a really, I think it was a really interesting, dare I say, bold choice to have this yep. episode. I think I don't want them to do more episodes like this because I, I feel like this is a moment in time and I don't want anything. I, I think if they keep doing this, it's going to become a gimmick. And I think yeah. that that's a bad move. So hopefully this is it. But yeah. man, oh man, I, I, it's fantastic. I think the the big one for me was like it, it feels like this is the adaptation versus uh, direct parrot directly parroting what they, was done before. Mm-hmm. So in the game, uh, Bill and, and Frank's story is different, um, and it, the unfold is different from what I understand. <clears throat> what they did here was they gave us the opportunity to see that um, the, the story that they're telling is that you have the ability for for certain people to find happiness in the middle of this madness and that two people found one another um, and created a life that they couldn't have had pre pre outbreak. Right. Um, because Bill didn't feel comfortable in his own life being who he was, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I think Frank is sort of a person like who is really, connected to people, but I don't know that he's ever been forced to be honest and real. Mm-hmm. Like the type of personality he has doesn't feel like he's sort of a, he's comfortable, extroverted, probably fueled by many people in his life. And by being forced to get to know Bill and and care, they, this it created a relationship that probably wouldn't have happened if, if we were in normal society. Bill wouldn't have been comfortable letting Frank into his life and Frank wouldn't have been comfortable staying with one one human as his sole existence. Yeah. But yet together they they fulfilled each other's needs yeah. and created a perfect life together. Even though it's not perfect, it's there's more good days than bad, and that's all you can ask for, you know. Yeah, I think um, the word that I think the word that comes to mind is authentic. Like yeah. they've they've through this tragedy, this global tragedy, um, in this little tiny you know, slice of the world. They've, they've found a way to both become their authentic selves yep. without having the pressures 
and the judgment of of the rest of society around them. Um, it was it was, I mean, it, what a roller coaster it goes on. Yeah, I think um, there's there's a couple of things I want to point to. One, I, I think there there's amazing individual lines that that show a depth of knowledge about relationships and care. Right. Like I, I didn't have to be scared until you arrived. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's a really beautiful idea. Like, yeah. he, you know, Bill wasn't wasn't worried about himself. Right. He he was prepared to do what needed to be done. He's a survivalist. So he was sort of just on autopilot and and didn't even think about getting killed. And yeah. then when Frank was part of his life, he had to worry about this person he loved. Right. Like and that opened him up and changed how he thought about the world and about life and about everything. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> the final shot of the episode is the open window. Mm-hmm. The open window is the save screen, uh, the opening screen for the video game. So they wow. finally bookended that in <clears throat> this moment where like you see pollen flowing and these windows with curtains blowing. Mm-hmm. So they, w- they very smartly are, are bringing forward imagery sounds that make you think of the game, but they find ways to work it in. So it's not like, hammered home that this is what you're seeing yeah. but it was an extremely subtle way to end the episode to have an open window with curtains blowing and the 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 key notes that you hear throughout the game on that screen yeah uh, and and it's just there's there's so much love care and affection given to this show by the creators and um I, I we didn't really talk about it much but i i my favorite was neil Druckmann in one of the interviews said when you first saw the clicker in person uh, after they had done the makeup tests and then that person was on set, mm-hmm. he started crying because he's like, it's beautiful. And it's, I never thought this was possible. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's the way every episode feels is like, I didn't think this was possible, right? Like I didn't think there was this, like, it's, it's wrong to call it a bottle episode because there are other aspects of it, right? There's a lot of back and forth about this on like really annoying pedantic internet right now, mm-hmm. but it, they, they show this little smaller story inside of this larger story and you spend, you know, there's a two hour cut of this episode from what I understand. And Druckmann said, like, they cried for an hour. Like, wow. they, they couldn't do that to the audience, right? Yeah. Like, so they they had to find a way to tell the story and, and have it be emotional and have it fit within what could be sort of an episode length. It's like one hour and 12 minutes or something like that. It's a, it's a long episode. They should really be in theaters. I, honestly, I agree. Like, if this goes up for, like, Emmy Awards and things like that. If they really want to drive it home, I, I would do like a Q and A and and let the two hour cut of this episode yeah. be shown. You know? If anything, like yeah, like do it, like do a fat. That's what they should do. They should call up Fathom Events and they should show this episode on the big screen with a either a recorded or a live Q and A after after showing it. Um, so. I mean, we're talking a lot about this episode. <clears throat> We've been very high on a lot of television. I'm really impressed with this show. I'm really, I cannot believe the performances we just saw. Mm-hmm. The the intimacy, the connection, the the depth of knowledge about characters, right? Like I'm so bought into when somebody can tell a story in a short period of time and make you understand every aspect of a character. Mm-hmm. This episode does that. Yeah. We know who Bill is. We know who Frank is. So that when 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 the show goes where you expect it to go, we feel it. Right. Like um, there, there's a really beautiful scene where they like eat strawberries for the first time. Oh, my God. I was going to talk time. about that. Yeah. Um, and when they talked about it, uh, they they knew they wanted to shoot. So the show is almost always shot with natural light. So the I listened to an interview with the um, with the cinematographer 
Um, and, and they talked about the fact that like they try really hard to use natural light all the time. So sometimes it'll be like, there's no, not enough windows. What if a car hit the wall here? Right. Like, so right. they, they think really hard about how to naturally light this world. Sometimes it, to the point where like, uh, the, the decision to where the table and the kitchen was in the house was made based on how much natural light they had. Mm. So they were able, they moved it around. They, they wanted sconces that felt like they belonged in that house, but also wouldn't throw harsh light on the people. Mm-hmm. So there's some really interesting choices that are being made, but in that scene, they wanted the, you know, in the game, you spend so much time with spores being yeah. a part of the world. And uh, in this episode, they wanted uh, for the first time to really um, have pollen feel like it was part of the space. So in that episode, they make fake pollen. So that way in that moment in golden hour, you have these like light, like almost ethereal shadowing of the people that mm-hmm. is pollen supposed to be falling. Um, that is not in the other episodes, right? They, that shot was done at golden hour. They had 15 minutes of light and they were like, not sure they were going to get it in the first day, but like literally the cinematographers like, we're not doing this without this, without the natural lighting. And they were able to shoot it in one day. They had 15 minutes. So that entire shot is done in a 50, but it's because they chose to put the strawberry plants and and the actual field in this spot that got this sunlight, right? Like, <clears throat> so it's it's a combination of like lighting and cinematography and production design and directing, right? This is this is like high quality television that's happening here, you know? Yeah. And I mean, not just from a technical point of view, but like for me, um, it really kind of like I was experiencing the idea that I haven't had like maybe like natural sugar or just the taste of strawberries in in possibly a decade yeah um just like the 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 sensory overload that both of them get yeah uh was very palpable on screen and even uh bill nick offerman's character even like does this like giddy giggle yeah when he eats a strawberry and it was just really really amazing and um yeah i mean i can't yeah, the more even even sitting here talking about the episode, yeah, maybe it is one of the best, you know, the best episodes of of episodic television ever made. Yep, uh, definitely want to uh, go back and watch it again though. I'm really excited to see where the show continues to go. We're now at the point where we're past the game that I've played, so mm-hmm. I'm very excited to stop being able to compare. Now I'm able to just sit with the show as a yeah. show. Yeah, me um, too. We 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 were we were way past how far I got. I don't think I even got to to Bill in the game. So, um, all right. So let's jump over to some films. Uh, in my want to try to watch and catch up on everything that was Oscar nominated, uh, my wife and I sat down and watched Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on Peacock. Uh, this is an extremely charming movie. Uh, this I, I there's no reason why <clears throat> this is a film that everybody can't throw into their queue and just have a very nice time at the movies. Um, it's charming. It's sweet. It's, it's well done. I think the production design and the costuming in this is unbelievable, which is what it got nominated for. Mm. No, no real surprise when Dior is uh, Christian Dior's uh, dresses are the focal point of the movie mm. that it's going to get nominated for costume design. Um, yeah. But it, it's the production design is also amazing. She lives in this like, garden apartment in in uh in london that feels or in the somewhere in in britain it feels extremely real like you've been in apartments like this it it reminded me so much of like new york garden apartments 
You go down three flights, three steps, and then you open this door and you're walking into what is basically like a semi-walled off um, uh, single apartment uh, that almost feels like one bedroom. Like Mm -hmm. your kitchen, your living room, your bedroom, it's almost like a studio garden apartment. And it just feels so natural. Um, and I think there's an amazing ease uh, that Leslie Mann, uh, who's the main character, has in playing this character who is empathetic and caring and takes care of everyone. Um, it's there's, there's no aspect of this film that doesn't feel believable. And that's interesting saying because uh, she goes to Paris to try to buy a Dior dress and ends up at Dior's house and ends up at a showing of the new dresses for the season. And uh, it's it's a it's really cute. Like the way it unfolds is adorable, but none of it feels impossible, which is really impressive because this is a sort of almost like modern day fairy tale is what it feels like. And uh, it they, they were able to balance out like the sweet aspects and the practical aspects that none of this feels unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief, but you're also like, yeah, this is this is charming. Like. Uh, charming is the, the word I would put like on, on their poster, like the one word for this film. Cool. Uh, you talked a little bit about this uh, when you were talking about Gaslit, but uh, talk to me about um, the Martha Mitchell effect documentary. Yeah. So this is a, uh, it's a very short uh, in the short docs space. Uh, the Mar- Martha Mitchell effect is on Netflix. It is uh, the sort of 40 minutes uh it's like this is on rails. This is a fast moving documentary about who Martha is, the impact she had on uh, on both Watergate and Nixon. But also uh, there there's a Harvard professor that that coined the phrase, the Martha Mitchell effect, which is when someone publicly is called out for lying or something is wrong and it turns out to be true. So that is where the term comes from, the Martha Mitchell effect. So it's like when someone is gaslit and it turns out to be the other side of the coin is true, that is what the Martha Mitchell effect is. Um, This is really great because it also, in conjunction, is telling the whole story of gaslit for me. So seeing the real Martha Mitchell and then feeling how Julia Roberts is embodying that character is, is really unique. I didn't expect to have documentary about Martha and be watching Gaslit at the same time. But it really does feel like it rounds out and gives me more confidence that Julia Roberts will likely get nominated for Best Actress in a uh, limited series. She's she's really good in it, and and she really embodies uh, all of the quirky, um, chatty, Southern nature that is Martha. And it's so good to have that to hold up a candle against, right? Like it's almost like I have a, it's, it's a fun house mirror. It feels like you have the real Martha over here. And then you have, you know, Julia Roberts, who we all know is like America's sweetheart playing this character. Who's a little quirky and a little rambunctious and a little uh, like often people talked about her as much. She's too much for the DC scene. She was a woman who spoke her mind and, mm. and, but Heaven like, forbid. but also was just charming and funny and vivacious and right. like, you know, seeing the, the the version of her that uh, Julia Roberts gets to play is really fun. So I, I, if you, if you decide to watch Gaslit, I would suggest watching the Martha Mitchell effect just so you can feel how good uh, the performances are. And it doesn't feel like it's a copycat. It feels like Julia Roberts is interpreting who Martha was. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'm assuming this was, 
uh, because of our main review and your 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 big your big fan of M Night Shyamalan that you finally watched Devil, which is available on Stars, I think, right? Yeah, so I I finally broke down and watched Devil. Uh, Devil is a really uh, is the movie that uh, when the trailers came out, it was uh, when M Night was at a sort of lowest point, and the the I remember seeing videos of people. Uh, when it would come up at the very end and say like the whole trailer would end. And then it would say like from the mind of M night Shyamalan and like the audience laughed, right? This like was, there's a lot is, of that yeah, type this, of footage, you know, from that era. This is post avatar, the last airbender, right? Or sorry, just not take the avatar out. This is post the last airbender, right? I believe it is. Um, right. And I also think it may be after he did after earth. So he's really in this like downward slide from large funded films. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is it's it's from his mind. So he wrote the story, not the screenplay, and he also doesn't direct it. Mm. Um, so what's what I liked about this is uh, it's a short film. It's it's very tight in its construction. Um, there's about eight main players, and those eight players are really um, caricatures of the types of people. Uh, that you may run across in your daily life. Um, the idea being, you, you know, there are five people in an elevator. The elevator gets stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie opens with somebody committing suicide or falling to their death outside of this. Uh, there's a there's a giant truck that is uh, that there's a dead body on top of. And it turns out that uh, the, the truck rolled down the hill and around the corner after the person landed on it. So um, they follow this back and there's glass in front of this building. There's somebody cleaning up and we immediately meet these two detectives. Chris Messina plays the main detective in the film. Big fan and, of him as an actor. What's that? Big fan of him as an actor. He's a great yeah. actor. What, what I will say is the script is smart. It's a very smart script. So I kept saying to my wife, like, he feels like such a competent detective, mm-hmm. right? Um, they get a call because uh, in the elevator, something transpires and there's a worry that there may be something more going on and somebody may have been attacked in the elevator. So he hears it over the radio and he's right there because they're investigating this this dead body that landed on the thing. And he's like, ah, he, he he's like the, the address comes in and he's like, it's got to be right here. And he looks over and it's the building he's standing in front of. And he's like, hey, uh. This is, this is Bowden. Like, uh, put, put that one on me. Uh, I'm right outside. Mm-hmm. And like, he goes inside the building and you immediately get this moment where like security is, is watching what's going on in the elevator and they can, they can talk to the elevator, but they can't hear the double-sided nature of the speaker is broken. So what's awesome is he walks into this room and literally says like, all right, who's working on the elevator? And, uh, they're like, uh, elevator guy. And they're like, is that guy your guy? Or is it the elevator company? And it's like, uh, our guy. And he's like, call the elevator company, get somebody down here. And then he's mm-hmm. like, get fire department down here. So we have we have people to get through the wall if we need to. But it's like within seconds, he like takes control of the situation. And I just feel like competent detectiving uh, and policing is not shown in films very often. And he like grabs the microphone and he's like, hey, I'm Detective Bowden. Uh, we're here. Uh, we're looking into it. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have you out pretty soon. Hang in there. Wow. Like just this amazing calm mo- moment of like, what would a good cop do, right? Like he's assessing the situation. He comes in and he's like, let's get everything taken care of. Like we're, this isn't a, this isn't a murder scene. Like, but these people are scared. Like let's, 
here's the eight things we need to do in the next 10 minutes to make this happen. You know, like, yeah. and, and I just loved how practical it felt. Like he's very believable as a detective. Like I, I, I don't know that I know Chris Messina very often from, from a lot of stuff, but boy, I just kept going back to like, I believe this guy, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I believe who he is. There's, there's a whole bunch of other stories that go on and in inner lock and inner, I think there's, there's a little bit of a psychological, like super natural component to what's happening. Um, and I almost wish that was left out. Like, I feel like just the tension of five people in an elevator who don't know one another, don't trust one another. There, there are all these sort of, relatively terrible like caricatures of humans is enough for this film <clears throat> but the psychological and and sort of uh, supernatural piece didn't make the film better for me it just sort of was like yeah i guess this is a pretty solid three-star film and and honestly the supernatural nature neither pushed it higher or lower um and and i wish it was i almost wish the script was rewritten as like a non-supernatural film and, and we could make the same film with almost the same people playing all these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Chris Messina is the giant standout. Like he's so believable in this, in this role and also just a smart script. Like at one point, one of the people is, uh, they try to figure out who these people are. They're in this building. It's a commercial building. They're all, they all have appointments, right? That's the reason they're in this building. So they figure out that one of the women in the elevator is going to this, to see a lawyer. So, they get everybody out of the building they're, they're They evacuate everyone down to the first floor and he comes out looking for the lawyer that this person has an appointment with. And he's like, finally, the guy's like, yeah, I'm over here. And he comes over and he's like, uh, do you know this person? And he's like, I can't talk about my cases. And he's like, listen, I'm trying to save her life. And he's like, I, I can't, I can't. And, mm-hmm. and he's like, well, like, come on, buddy. Like, this is ridiculous. You know, like, give me something. And they like, the lawyer takes him around the corner. He's like, I can't tell you anything, but I would look closest to her maybe. And uh, as just sort of a, an aside, like that he's not breaking confidence. But then he goes, I study forensic uh, financials. That's my law. So he like gives him enough that like uh, you might want to look into something having to do with money. Right. Like and, and I feel like there's just clever aspects in the script all the way along that make me feel like this is how like well appointed human beings would act. Um, and, and that not every film has that, you know, yeah, sure. and I don't think every M night Shyamalan film has that. So is this that it's his story being like run through the Brian Nelson filter who wrote right. the script, you know, like there's an interesting play here that feels very grounded that I don't think all of M nights, especially his dialogue doesn't often feel very grounded. And this movie has like a, a reality to it in this really weird supernatural film that kind of was the thing I, I latched onto, you know? Hmm. Yeah, and also, um, uh, Bokeem uh, Woodbine. I, I'm looking at the cast again. Is in the yeah. movie. He plays the guard. I love that guy. He's uh-huh. <clears throat> Bokeem Woodbine is like the guy that's in every movie that you're like, oh, that's that. He's that guy. Yeah. He always yeah, he a, plays a security guard, yeah. and it's he's a temp security guard, and it's like his second day. Yeah. So he's like squirrely. Uh, they're trapped in the elevator, and at one point, like you can see, he's panicking. And, and people are just like, what's your problem? And he's like, my brother used to lock me in a trunk. He left me, locked me in a trunk for six hours one time. Uh, I, don't, I don't do good in small spaces. Like, uh, so like, there's a reason why people are acting the way they're acting, which is what it feels like. Mm. Like everybody has motivation for why they're squirrely, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's smartly cast. I think that's the other thing is like everybody who's in the elevator, who's in the elevator uh, is a caricature of a type of person. Um, right. and, and I think that's really smart. Uh, Jenna O'Hara plays the old woman in the elevator. Um, Jeffrey Arnand plays the salesman who's like slimy, 
Uh, and then who's the woman? There's a younger woman. Uh, hold on. She's, she's really great and sort of steals a lot of it. Uh, Bo, Bo Giovanna Novok, Novokic. Uh, but so there's like really interesting caricatures of humans in the elevator. And every one of them has a pretty deep backstory and a reason for being. And, and I, again, I'm very, I'm all bought in when somebody gives me a reason to believe in their characters. And, and this movie does a lot of that. Cool. Uh, switching over. Um, you also watched uh, Causeway, which I believe is the movie that Brian Tyree Henry is getting a lot of uh, talk about. Correct. Yeah. This, this movie is kind of a two hander between Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Tyree Henry. Um, she is a, uh, person, uh, she's a military person who is, has traumatic brain injury. So the movie opens up with her sort of, um, coming back home and going to like a halfway house to be, to be helped by, by like a, uh, she lives in someone's house to learn how to reacclimate to life post traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ends up, uh, she has a truck, her mom, like this very complicated relationships. I, I don't want to get too deep into the story here because I, I love the way it unfolds. But mm-hmm. in the end, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's truck that she's driving starts to have a problem and she drives it to a, a garage. And it turns out that it's uh, Brian Tyree Henry's character, James's garage. And uh, that is how their connection starts. And the movie is very much about like, how do humans in their thirties who are kind of broken become friends? Mm-hmm. And is it, is it possible and I, I think Jennifer Lawrence is so stripped down in this movie and very like um, aloof because she's not, sh- she doesn't trust herself. She doesn't trust the life she's a part of. She, she's constantly trying to get back to military action. Um, and they're not sure that she should like her friend, you know, James doesn't is not sure. Her therapist is not sure. Right. Like there's a lot of like trying to figure out what, um, where she should be going. That I, I and and it's not all on her, right? Like the doctor is played. Her doctor is played by Stephen McKinley Henderson, um, who you would absolutely recognize. He's 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 the uh, Mentat in uh, Dune. Okay, um, the guy who is the human computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's been in so many things. He's also um, a very he's a very prolific stage actor. He's yeah. he's actually uh, in a Broadway play right now with um, with Common actually. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Um, he's unbelievable as her doctor. He like, she, she's like, I need you to sign this waiver. And he's like, I think physically you're probably okay. I don't, mentally, I don't, I don't think this is good for you. Like, mm-hmm. and it's, it's real honest conversations. I feel like people have in that space and, and sort of very stripped down. Like Jennifer Lawrence is really vulnerable in this movie. Uh, she also, because of who she is and because of her background and what she's doing, it's really interesting. Like there's no, there's no dolling her up. Like she has no, like, I don't know that there's the character wears makeup once in the film. I don't know that her hair has done anything more than just like left to do its own devices. Like, uh, it, it just feels so different than other roles I've seen her play. And it's this really interior character that, that she, you can see that there's a lot going on inside of her and even her exterior doesn't seem to mimic what's going on inside. And I think it's, it's for somebody who is as like, um, vivacious and alive as the character she plays sometimes the 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 stoicism and and the ability to hold back her natural charisma is what i feel like you see in this film and brian tyree henry is just a walking charm box like 
there's there's not a time I've seen him on screen where I'm like I don't want to hang out with him and and this is one of those films where he's he's got a kind of broken backstory as to why he is who he is and where he is but he is his empathy and his charm is everywhere like he explodes off the screen whereas like Jennifer Lawrence is like falling away right like there's a nice balancing act of the two of them being in scenes together where you're like god like he is just like like vibrating at a different frequency than she is. And it's just because they're, it's who they are as people. They're both kind of broken, but he is a different kind of broken. And, and I, I really loved it. I think it's a really great film that I'm so glad to see he got nominated for. I, I, I'm, I'm bought in on him as an actor, but for a film like this, that is really small and, and doesn't, you know, it's on Apple TV plus. So it's, it's not as small as it could be, mm-hmm. um, but a very interior, very small two hander film, to get acknowledgement by the academies is really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of his as, as well. Um, now, we reviewed Tar before. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what episode that was, though. It was the Middleburg episode. So we. Ah, I see. It was the main review on the Middleburg episode. Gotcha, right. Because it. Because. Ah, uh, yes. I was like, where? I'm trying, trying to. So if you, guys, if you guys go back to episode 12. Uh, you can hear uh, kind of our thoughts on Tar, but it's now available on Peacock. Yep. Um, any what? What is the? Are there new revelations that you have? Um, I think the first viewing of it, I was so put off by the coldness of the world, of the character, of the person that Kate Blanchett was embodying, mm-hmm. that I was less uh, positive on it as a film. Um, mm-hmm. Watching this film, I almost broke down in tears because I was like, I feel very bad for Michelle Yeoh. I, I think this is a singular performance. Um, and I think in any other year, I would expect Michelle Yeoh to be uh, a runaway for best actress. And I mm-hmm. feel like Kate Blanchett is like almost a brick wall in front of her competition this year. Like it oh, is yeah. it is an unbelievable performance. And and for the way that the Oscars thinks about how sometimes it's maximalist cinema right? Like that they, that they focus on like the biggest, uh, the biggest costumes, the biggest production. Mm -hmm. This is a very like cold and stoic film with a giant performance by one woman. And, and this feels like the most acting that is happening this year, right? Like um, without it being overacting, I think she's embodying this character that I don't know that anyone else could. I said to my wife, well, you know, after we watched it, I'm like, this is sort of, if, if Todd, Todd Field uh, said he wouldn't make this film without Kate Blanchett and, and that I can't imagine this film being made with anyone else. And, and that is unique. And I think that is, makes me nervous for Michelle Yeoh's possibilities at this point. If Michelle um, Yeoh doesn't win, there will be riots. <laughs> I, I think the other thing I will say is Peacock's 4k stream for this and it's Atmos is really good. Uh, no that's the first time I've said that about Peacock. I think Peacock is about to have, I think it's Peacock and Showtime are about to merge publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's either Peacock or Paramount Plus. Uh, but I, I was really impressed with the quality of the stream. Um, but also when we got into the orchestra pr- like uh, practicing, the sound was as good in my opinion or better than my experience was when I saw it at Middleburg. The sound is like overwhelming and everywhere. They did a really great job of like making sure there was enough bandwidth available in the stream 
to carry the Atmos and the sort of directional sound. Mm. Um, it's really well done. Uh, so just sort of a nod to the quality of what I saw on Peacock. I, I'm surprised to say that because um, often streaming doesn't feel like it's as good as what you can get off a of 4K disc. And this is one where I'll probably eventually buy it as a 4K disc because it is it is so much about the visuals and about the audio track that I think it, it's, it's worthwhile. And it's a mm-hmm. film I'll probably show to people over the years. Um, but I was really impressed by Peacock stream here. It, it was it was not what I was expecting to walk away from this film with. Cool. Yeah, I mean, like you can go back to the episode, and um, I, I mean, I haven't watched the movie since since we've seen it. Um, I can definitely, I I I wholeheartedly uh, support the idea that Kate Blanchett is awesome, but um, yeah, I fucking hated her in that movie, and and because she was so good, like yeah, they wrote this character that is to me is very unlikable. And I really, got, it, she got me really angry. And I mean, that is the, that is a, that's the mark of a, of a great performance. If it, if it makes you feel something, it doesn't always have to make you feel good. It yeah. Make you feel bad too. So I think so. one nice thing also is rewatching it. Uh, since I know where the show, where the movie's going, where I know I, I was looking for details and less about like being surprised and, and having to know what the story was revisiting the Juilliard scene is, is really powerful and knowing that it's coming. I, I sort of had to brace myself for what was about to happen. That like mm-hmm. five minutes was really, it's, it's like, you know, you're pushing a boulder over the edge and you're just waiting for it to destroy everything in its path. Like you can feel that energy. Now, when you watch it again, um, mm-hmm. when, when you know it's about to happen and you're like, so this is an important scene, right? Like there was a couple of times where like, you know, I would say that to my wife. I'm like this, you should really focus on this. Like this is about to be, a big deal. Um, but I was kind of blown away when the movie opened uh, to revisit the sort of credits with the music, the choice of the music from South America. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it's so, it's so it's such a big choice to make to open a film that way. Um, and so different than anything else I've seen in a really long time. And also the, when we first meet uh, Lydia on stage, there is the back of a, we see uh, of a, like behind a woman uh, is what you see. And you realize when you see it for the second time that Krista is in that audience and it's Krista that we're, we're behind that, that red hair that you see um, and, and the impact that like, so the first time you see it, you don't really know who that person is and why that person is important. And then you realize on second viewing that Krista is in that audience and it really does change a little bit. I think seeing it a second time added a lot more, um, depth to the to the movie than i was expecting mm-hmm. michelle be a better win <laughs> <laughs> all right let's get it uh you you saw you people i i didn't get a chance to because i was on the other tear uh talk to me about it what, what was your feelings this movie is incredible this movie is fantastic um so you people look the i the the setup for you people is not original in that sense where this is very much like a Look who's coming to dinner, uh, father of the bride, um, you know, like uh, a what, what's the right term? The, um, you know, like when, when two people get together and you don't, you know, they're, they're, they seem like they're from two different worlds and then they they go and meet their family and, and, and madness ensues. And, you know, we've seen we've all seen that before. But 
Um, this comes from this is this stars uh, Jonah Hill, and it's written by Jonah Hill and Kenya Barris. And Kenya Barris uh, directed the directed the film. Uh, if you don't know who Kenya Barris is, he is the person who gave us all the ishes. So blackish, um, youngish, I believe, or grownish. Sorry, uh, blackish, grownish. Um, he also was a writer on Girls Trip. Um, he is he he also has his own television show where he kind of um, uh, uh, called uh, hashtag Black AF, and um, he plays himself. And um, Rashida Jones is his wife in that, and that's a fantastic show. So so we have you have Jonah Hill who falls in love so as as a white Jewish man. Uh, but who has a podcast with um, an incredible actor, Sam J. Uh, I don't know what Sam J's pronouns are, but um, I believe they're uh, female identifying. But they, you know, they they have a very, you know, they're. I don't I don't want to sound insensitive, but you know they have you know, they kind of are a little male presenting ish, but I I believe they are. Anyway, um, Sam J is incredible as a, as as a performer, um, and Sam J and Jonah Hill have this podcast about quote unquote the culture, but really it's it's very much black culture. But Jonah Hill is a huge; he loves passionately like all things that you know, like would kind of create black culture. He loves the clothing, the music, um, the food, all that stuff, and he meets. So he, he he plays Ezra and he meets Amira, who is played by Lauren London, who is incredible. They have incredible chemistry. They they fall madly in love. They want to get married, so they have to meet each other's uh, parents. Now, Laura London, uh, Amira's father, is played by Eddie Murphy. And um, Jonah Hill's mother is played by Jewy Louis Dreyfus. And everyone is... Everyone is at the top of their game to use that cliched term in this movie. First and foremost, like everyone seems so comfortable and like, it's like, there is like a, there, there very much is like, no one is acting in this movie. There's like this feeling that you're like, yeah, it's so naturalistic. And yet it is like a hilarious comedy. Um, but yeah, the, the, the things that are brought up because of the differences between the cultures, um, you know, Julie Lewis Dreyfus like very much wants to know. It's like, she's like, I want to be open and I want to know all about uh, the, you know, the culture of my, my future daughter-in-law. And um, it's just really interesting because like, it, it just like shows how there's a difference between like wanting to be an, uh, an ally and and wanting to, versus like turning someone into like a toy or a plaything and just like wanting to know more about them and uh in and i think the cool thing about this is like everyone's guilty like eddie murphy's character is just as guilty as julie louis dreyfus about you know, like instantaneously stereotyping jonah hill's character um, not, you know, and like being resistant to this kind of like take him for who he is, uh, immediately having preconceived notions 
it's a really fantastic um it's a really fantastic movie there is you know i always feel like um you know you you learn better through laughter so like you laugh the you like people are gonna laugh into conversations and i think um i don't know one of the trailers that of this movie that came out later after it opened is like the movie that has everyone talking and yeah there are a lot of talking points in this movie and i think it's really interesting and i think it's it's just like i'm so impressed and and this is um so for people who don't know jonah hill's kind of gone through like this like re and reinvention of his entire life where like he's like a surfer dude now he's like he's like tatted from like sternum to like knees he like is just like kind of like takes on this more like surfer dude talking when he like just talks in general and it's like he like surfs and like that's kind of like his coping mechanism in life i watched some like interviews with him Mm -hmm. and the it's just like a very it's a different jonah hill and it's like i don't know i'm i'm very impressed in how how far he's come from like the 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 age of super bad and you know he in like i don't know even just like even just from where he's come from like uh wolf of wall street to now is is very is very interesting and eddie murphy again he's so in this movie he's he's super subdued and he's just like kind of like he's a presence yeah. and um and eddie murphy in himself now is a presence he is an icon and he doesn't have to do much in this movie to to do that and it's just like i'm assuming i'm assuming everyone is knows what they're doing in this movie as as actors but kenya barris i'm i'm also assuming is like had the right eye and and could tell them very subtly like how to you know make sure that that the tone was all right across the board and uh it's just a yeah it's just a great it's like i can't like these are one of those movies i'm like god damn this was this was really great that's awesome Uh, and it's definitely there's definitely rewatchability i'm surprised this was released when it was was released and i know we talk a lot about like awards ceremonies and stuff on this movie and i and i i feel like i don't know if we should like always be focusing on like oh movies need awards and stuff but like when it comes down to it like oh i guess awards and notoriety help push movies into the right into the right places and i'm surprised this was released in january and is not is not in their running i, I would imagine for anything because of the release date uh and also like I guess because it's Netflix, like it was released on Netflix, but like this should have gotten a theatrical release. It's that mm-hmm. good. Uh, it's it's really cool. It's it's something I, I've been hearing a lot of positives about. So it's cool to hear your like effusive comments about the film <clears throat> and giving a little more context because I feel like it's not a film like, uh, you know, the, the log line for this film does not say like emotionally like mature approach to telling a story. It feels very like, you know, by numbers, paint by numbers feel of a, of a film like this. Sure. So it's, it's pretty great to hear that. Like, it's not, it's not paint by numbers. It's, it's people really um, knowing their characters, knowing the story that they're telling and also sort of uh, embracing the, uh, the aspect of this film and going transcending this sort of the trope of the film, I feel like mm-hmm. is the way I would put it. 
Um, there's a documentary on on Netflix called Stutz, uh, which is uh, Jonah Hill and his therapist. It's a documentary about Jonah Hill and uh, his and how his therapist and he have approached uh, his his psychological health. And apparently, Amazing. it's really great. Um, yeah, I it's it, I haven't yet seen it. It's in my queue of things to watch, but um, I. I, I, it's definitely been one of those things that I keep bouncing past and I'm like, God, I'm trying to catch up on stuff. Uh, but it's definitely in my queue and I, I hope to watch it soon. I think it'll be a nice double feature. I think for me to watch with this film. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, we, jump, jump I may, to our fi- yeah. No, just saying now that I know that's there, I may have to, that may be something that I report back on next week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is the the last film before our main review. This probably would have been our review last week if we didn't uh, talk about Sundance. Uh, this is Puss in Boots, uh, The Last Wish. I uh, went and saw this in the theater this week. I really uh, have been hearing nothing but positive things about it. Uh, it's it's position being the the in the animated feature film uh, nominations uh, was one of the things that pushed me to want to go see it. But that and all the positive uh, press that's been going on. Um, I just want to take a second and, and point out like this people. I've heard some people say that the, this is not a good year for animated features. I, I'm confused by that. Very Who's much saying that. So the five films that are currently nominated for best animated feature are Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Marcel the Shell with Shoes on, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, The Sea Beast and Turning Red. All of those films are four star or above in my ratings. Yeah. And the one film that's not on there that should be is Wendell and Wild. Um, so I have at least three or four other animated films that I could have put in this list and not felt bad about it. So I think everybody needs to take a breath. This has been a hell of a year for animated feature films. Yeah, I mean, let's all not forget. Types, you know? Yeah, let's let's also not forget that Strange World came out and it's a fantastic film, but it, yeah. but and it, it got it did not do, perform well. But that's not the fault of the film. You know hundred I mean? percent. Yeah. So. so I just wanted to note, like I, I've been hearing some weird buzz when I listen to a lot of critics talking about like, this isn't a good year for feature animated features. And I'm like, you're, you're just wrong. This, this film had this, this year has at least six or seven really solid four star animated films. Yeah. Um, so to, to jump into this film, this is the second film in the Puss in Boots uh, film series. Third. Actually the third, third, there was Puss in Boots and, he was part of the Shrek films, right? There was a direct to streaming or whatever movie that was kind of the. Uh, it was like a three. Oh, the three like Diablos. A, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that's there, but no one really saw that. So yeah, I so this is I I, I was exposed to this character via Shrek. I don't know that I ever saw the first Puss in Boots film. Um, I definitely didn't see Three Diablos. But uh, one of the things we had talked about was whether or not you could just jump in and see this film. You can just jump in and see this film. Yeah. Uh, it we, we talked a little bit about whether or not it was going to be possible, or because like John and I talked afterwards last week trying to figure out if we were going to do what we were going to do. And I asked him very pointedly if he if I felt if he felt like I had to watch uh, Puss in Boots, and he said no. Uh, mm-hmm. I think one thing to note, uh, studio people, this film uh, is out and is nominated for an Oscar. Uh, why don't you make your first film available on a streaming service? Uh, what is what is going on? Uh, I, I did not, not want to pay. Anywhere? I did not want to pay five dollars to rent uh, Puss in Boots when I pay for every streaming service available on the planet. Mm, yeah. uh, it just seemed very surprising to me that like to support this film and its 
run towards an Oscar, wouldn't you want to give it everything you possibly could and uh, create as much buzz as you could around it? I, I'm very confused by the fact that this film, the original film is not available somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, taking all that aside, the film is great. I think normally I get annoyed when uh, all of the uh, voice cast in an animated film is, is non-voice actors, but uh, this film gets the best out of everyone involved. I, I think Joel Crawford and uh, Johnwell Mercado are uh, do such an amazing job of getting real, genuine performances out of these actors and convince them how to bring the empathy that they usually use their whole body for and and their the the personality into these voice acting roles. I think there's a there's a it's a different skill set, right, to be a voice actor than to be an actor in movies or television. And I am so impressed by what they were able to pull out of all of these amazing actors. Like they, they perform so there's so much heart in this movie um, and so much nuance in the characters they're playing. Um, Henry Gillian, who plays Perito, who is uh, Guillermo in what we do in the shadows on the television show mm-hmm. is fantastic in this. Like I would be so surprised that he doesn't get cast in a million more animated films off of the back of this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of, uh, sang the praises of this, uh, this movie back in, um, in, uh, episode, the women talking episode we did. I also, I also had seen it that episode, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. The, this franchise is to me is far superior to the Shrek franchise. This, uh, this movie, the first movie and, um, the movie in the middle, as it were. The thing that the thing that really stands out about these movies, there's no cynicism in these movies. Yeah, uh, Puss is Puss loves life. He loves adventure. He loves danger. He sincerely thinks he's like the greatest thing in the world. Whereas, like the Shrek movies, are based on a big middle finger to large corporate uh large other large corporate entities that perhaps the 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 studio heads of the Shre- of dreamworks might have uh have issue with and i feel like that's kind of, there's a there's a cynicism in the shrek world but not in puss and boots and yeah it it it's just like so enjoyable and he's so goddamn cute and you pair him with like like Antonio Banderas's sultry voice and everything. It's just, it's, 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 I mean, it's a, it's a perfect, it's a perfect storm of, of, of enjoyable viewing pleasure, both for adults and kids. Uh, I listened to a podcast that uh, where they were talking about um, recording. So this entire thing was done during the pandemic. So no one was normally not recording together anyway, but Salma Hayek and Antonio Banderas know each other so well that, uh, apparently Sama Hayek would take the script and was often bouncing so much, so much of what she was doing was bouncing off of puss and, and like knew how Antonio would, would improv, but like, apparently she does a really great Antonio Banderas, like uh caricature esque 
performance because Antonio Banderas is very physical when he's playing puss. Like he, part of him getting in character is very much moving around the microphone and, and, and uh, apparently Salma knows how he works. And uh, so had them in stitches. Like she's like, so this is what Antonio will do. And like, she would go into Antonio's voice and physicality. And then they would be like, cool. Like let's, let's record against what you think his improv is going to be. And so there was like this, uh, like almost unwritten, like love letter and dialogue between the two character actor, the actors of the characters and how it felt more improv and more like realistic in their interactions. Mm -hmm. Um, So like they almost should get like a co-writing credit on the screenplay because there's a lot of like Salma and Antonio taking their characters and making them more. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. that's really awesome. But they were so much joy in the way that it was talked about. Like Salma loves Antonio and knows exactly what to expect when she's acting against him. And yeah. there's just it's it's a love letter to their relationship as friends on top of everything else. Um, yeah. the, the one and huge standout to me was was Florence Pugh. I did not know she was playing Goldilocks, mm-hmm. and and Goldilocks is like she's a force of nature when she shows up in this movie, mm-hmm. and and the interactions between her and the three bears and her and puss and like are just so fun. Like she's, she's sort of sad and broken, but like constantly moving forward. And um, I was just really impressed. And, and Olivia Coleman is M- mama bear. Like it, there's just so many amazing actors. It's, it's unreal. Uh, the cast they were able to pull together for this. Yeah. It's great. Um, uh, one last note. Uh, yeah. Jack Horner, uh, having John Mulaney play Jack Horner as like a, a grown-up sociopath version of, of little Jack Horner is well, really big fun. Jack Horner, right? Big Jack Horner. I, I don't want to get beaten down. Uh, mm. It's really fun having that voice be the reason, be be the you know in in this like giant baby man is so funny, and the lines they give him, the way that he approaches the world, like is so like th- just a little stuff of like. Uh, the, are those unicorn horns? He's like, yeah, the little ones are babies. Uh, those are really powerful, right? Like just those little like aside lines. And then when he uses the horn, like it's an arrow for the first time and shoots someone and he's like, oh, that's what it does. Um, there's just so much like fun that it feels like they're having with these characters. Yeah. Uh, and the ability to sort of connect it to the grim fairy tales, to to like, you know, children's songs, to all the, the, the like minutia of like fairy tales um, and not make it feel like it's uh, shackled with it, but it's like a little pop of color whenever something comes, when you go to his trophy room, you're like, my God, there's just so much, like the room is just stacked. It's like in Andor, when you go to the, the antique shop, right? Like mm-hmm. every inch of every wall is covered by something. And if you broke it down, it would be like, it would be from something, you know, like the little ship in a bottle is the little Lilliputians and like they're in there. Like it's, there's just so much fun, wacky stuff going on, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. And that's definitely uh, I think that's a, definitely a, a holdover from the Shrek, Shrek world. I think that's, that's, although I, I was, you know, pooping on the Shrek world. Uh, the, the thing that I do enjoy about it is, yeah, like all the Easter eggs and all the kind of fairy tale homages and yeah, that that is a carryover, and I and I do enjoy that part. All right, it's main review time, my friend. You ready to rock and roll? You ready to knock at the cabin? We need some like we need we need some some segue music or something. We should get some of that. Yeah, uh, it seems like you should get on that. Are you making that music right now? I mean, if if hitting a desk is music, <laughs> then then I have yeah. Uh, so let's jump into this. Uh, knock at the cabin. Uh, 
the premise for this film is there is a couple with a daughter that that rent a cabin in the woods and uh all of a sudden four people arrive uh and uh chaos ensues uh, right like that's sort of the high level premise here um I, I I'm really impressed with um, how restrained the opening of the film feels. Hmm. The trailer gives away a lot of, I think what is going on in this movie, but um, the level of restraint in the, in like the build up to Leonard walking out of the woods and, and how the family is together and how they drive up to the campsite. And you, you know, each of their personalities from just the little interaction of them jumping into the lake um, and how much they love their daughter and, and how one is more protective and a little uptight and one is more adventurous. Like they, they do really, there's really amazing storytelling in, in just the first like five or six minutes of the movie about those characters. Um, and, and there's a lot that goes that, that carries over from those first five minutes through the rest of the film, in my opinion. Yeah. So this is based, this movie is based on a novel by, uh, Paul G. Tremblay. Um, the novel's called The Cabin at the End of the World. Um, and it, uh, the this movie has gotten the thumbs up from the, the author, although I, I do, I've been seeing comments that it does deviate quite a bit from the novel, but um, this is also the second time uh, that uh, M. Night Shyamalan has um, adapted something that wasn't an original script from him yep. i mean I, I i guess you could say last i guess you could say last airbender uh was a bit of an adaptation but he did write the script and story for it in a way but many people are saying um not just old which was his previous film but this film especially is kind of the m night Shyamalan renaissance and perhaps uh he is finding um new success and new inspiration in the fact that he's not uh, he's taking work that is already out there and, and, and adapting it to film. Yep. Um, I, I mean, spoilers, what is your, what's your, spoiler, spo- I was just going to say spoilers ahead, but um, the fact that uh, there's no major big, huge twist in this movie yep. uh, is a huge relief. And I, I do think that like, uh, to to put it frank, you know, in a sense, it's like, hey, M Night, like that worked for you for a little bit. Quit quit that shit. Like stop stop ha- stopping, stop feeling like you had to be forced to put a big huge twist in your movies. Um, I think it's it just got a little tired and like forced. And I think this is a a really incredibly successful movie because that pressure has been released. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I gave it three and a half stars. Uh, I think it is, uh, I don't know that I would classify it as top tier M. Shyamalan, M. Night Shyamalan, but I do think it is, uh, it's definitely a really interesting story to tell. And I think the level of um, competence and like confidence that he tells the story in this enclosed space. Um, and I think it's, it's a combination of like, there are two cinematographers that work on this film, one that does all the interior shots. Um, and it was because there was, they were already booked to do something else. So M night, uh, kind of notoriously, uh, reshoots. So he knew he was going to need someone else. 
So I think they focused very heavily on the shots inside the cabin for the main cinematographer. And he has a secondary cinematographer that is also noted in the credits uh, who does a lot of the like pickups and the outside work. Um, but it's, it's really interesting to choose to know yourself at this point in his career. Um, so he is a person who likes to work on film. He doesn't shoot digitally. He does a lot of reshoots. And so that means that he does a lot of daily work. So literally they're turning around dailies and he's reviewing them before they shoot every day, uh, of the previous day's work. Um, and, and that they, what's interesting is he kind of comes to set with like, we didn't get it yesterday. So like, we need to reset this scene. We need to reset the world. Like every day it's, it's, uh, he has a unique way of working that I don't know is, uh, is the way that most directors are working today. Um, he's very confident saying, I want to shoot it again. Uh, it's important for me to shoot it again because I don't think it's the right way. I don't think what we got was right. I don't think that the, it looks right. I don't think, you know, so I, I think he probably is a unique director in so many levels, but the confidence level that he shoots this movie and the confidence of, with the imagery that he pulls together, you know, when, when the four, uh, when the four people who are knockers, um, are standing in front of the two fathers, and it is from behind uh, Dave Batista's head, like Leonard, the character is telling them what's going on. The camera has his head as half the screen and one of the fathers. And then it cuts to another shot where his head is half of the screen and the other father. And it's like this visual interpretation of them being separated and that what Leonard is saying is, is affecting them both differently. And I, I'm just so impressed with like the subtlety in the way that he told the story and the, and the choice to cast Dave Batista, this mountain of a man and like wrap him in a shirt that feels like it is, is holding him together. Like this, like this, it, it, the, the tightness with which he carries himself and his, his discomfort in what he's doing and what he's a part of. There's so much that I think is unique about this movie. And I think Batista is, is, he's the focal point of this movie and, and is proven now. I think that with the right material, that man and the right director, he can, he can run a movie. He can, he can have a film wrapped around him. So there are a lot of really good actors in this movie, but this is really a Dave Batista acting seminar, right? Like this is him proving to the world. He can be a leading man. Yeah. I think, um, I think above all else, I mean, um, like I, I really enjoyed the movie, uh, and I think without, without as talented as actors as they got, even for the smaller roles, I think that this movie does not work as well. I mean, um, yeah, I think like story wise, it's 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 very interesting, and um, I, I there are some very interesting choices as far as cinematography goes, but like if you didn't have you know like. Um, like Nikki Amuka Bird yeah. and Abby Quinn um, as two of the uh, uh, two of the other knockers. Um, I, Rupert, so Rupert Grint, yeah, aka um, Ron Weasley, as all of you will know, he's also he's also in the um, Apple TV Apple Plus TV show that M Night Shyamalan does called uh, The Servant. Yep. And he puts on these accents that kind of put place him in a different world tone. Yep. Like, and he does the same thing here. 
It's the one thing I think that like took me out of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thankfully, that's spoilery. Spoiler lady, he might not be in the movie for that long, that much. Yeah. So that's okay. I think he's as much as I I would hate to say it, but he's sort of the weakest link character, and I think yeah. the performance. Yeah. I think everyone else, uh, like Jonathan Groff and Ben uh, Aldridge, are are really really good in this film yeah. as the characters they're playing. Like, there's no surprise; these are both great actors. But like the level of emotion, the care that they have with one another, the care that they have with when, right? Like it. It does not feel like you're watching actors act. It feels like you're watching a story unfold, sure. right? Like of, of these people. And yeah. I think the same thing for like watching Batista, you know, Dave Batista embody Leonard and, and have to sort of try to bring some empathy to the role of the character that he's playing for the people that he's talking to. There's so much conflicted restraint in what I feel like Dave Batista is doing. Like he so feels bad about where they are and what they're doing that like he doesn't even want to be in his skin is what it feels like. Mm. Like this, he almost feels like he's, he's flexing all of the muscles in his body to continue to move forward all the time. There's like a discomfort in what he's putting forward that isn't off-putting. It is empathetic in my opinion. Like, I feel so bad for the character of Leonard because he appears to be a nice guy who cares a lot about humanity, about children, about, and yet he's put in this position because of the way the story unfolds. Yeah. I mean, I would even say like, he doesn't appear. He is a nice guy. Yeah. He definitely, you know, and I think it's very obvious that um, Leonard doesn't, doesn't want to be there but he he knows he has to be there yeah um yeah i think that uh i the thing that i found interesting is like um i think they stray away from this um they stray away from this as the movie progresses and maybe that's because they switch cinematographers um but early on in the movie like we get these like extreme close-ups yeah to 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 moments that normally in any other movie would 100% not be an extreme close up. Yeah. And I think that obviously that's that is a that is a way to give you this feeling of like invasion of privacy, uh close spaces, uh claustrophobic, you know, areas. Um I thought that was an interesting choice and and a and uh it was kind of cool, definitely. Um, so one of the cinematographers, one of the directors of photography is, um, J, uh, is Jaron Blas, Blaskich, who is Robert Edgar's cinematographer for mm-hmm. the lighthouse. Right. I so see. you can feel the, uh, and the Northman, you know, like he's, he's worked a lot with like auteurs who have a specific vision. Um, and it, uh, he apparently did some work also on servant. So, uh, but I think the, the comp to lighthouse and cabin in, uh, knock in the cabin are similar that like claustrophobic feeling of a single room, um, and the use of that claustrophobic feeling. I think you're right. The, the, the very like, uh, cerebral choice of putting the camera where it is. So you're not seeing the, the majority of what is going on is a choice that is being made. I'm surprised the movie is rated R to be honest. Um, if they had removed like two fucks, they could have probably gotten to a PG 13 rating. It, it is 
it would not take very much to make this a PG-13 film. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that like rating systems, they, they do whatever they want. And you know what I mean? And like, um, it's like, so they like choose when to, I don't know. It's, it's rating systems are weird. Yeah. I think that a lot also you have to like take into consideration, like putting a, putting a young child in extreme harm yeah. is, 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 is a bit of an R rating, um, as well. We should talk um, about that young child. I think Kristen Q is, is really great. Like, I, yeah. I think like watching her, the scenes with her and Leonard interacting around the crickets outside are mm. just some of the most like beautiful, like beast and innocence. Like there's a, there's a menace because Frank you don't know who Frank Leonard is. Fine, like uh feel to it. Yeah. yeah it, it, there's this beautiful moment of like watching Leonard walk out of the woods and her questioning, like you can see the questioning behind her eyes about like, that guy's kind of scary. Like, and then he starts talking to her and she's like, I, I can't talk to you. We're, I don't talk to strangers, right? Like there's an, there's an honesty and a vulnerability in that, the, the child performance. There's no like cynicism. There's no um, like the child being in their dialogue or their actions being old, smarter than their age or like it feels very much like an honest reaction and, and Leonard's vulnerability and honesty in that moment, like wins her over. Like mm. there's, there's an, uh, the amazing moment where he asks about the scar on her lip and there, she looks like genuinely hurt. And then like he apologizes and then she like takes the apology and sort of mulls it over in her head and she's, and then like tells him where it came from. And I think that is so realistic in the way they handle that character, but she's really great. Like watching her, I want, I want, like a movie of her and him in a vulnerable situation. Like there's so much like em empathy in the way they communicate with one another and watching Dave Batista have to get down on a child's level and get in, in, in their head and make them feel confident and comfortable. Like I, I, I want the Leonard movie about him being a teacher, right? Like um, yeah. it's, it's really impressive. Like I know it's hard to think about like a guy covered in tattoos, like him being a second grade teacher. I think that's one thing that people keep laughing about or keep pointing out, but I think people have tattoos. Like it is just who they are um, and have lots of them. Like I, I love the vulnerability that he has in this character and, and how quickly she sees him as not a stranger, right. In, in like the, the three minutes of interaction they have. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Batista was just on a, um, one of the late night talk shows. Cause he's doing the late night talk show circuit for this movie. And he was saying, the 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 number one thing he wants to do right now is a romantic comedy and he's wanted to do one for a long time but no one is interested in him being the lead of a romantic comedy and hopefully that changes because I think he's a very sensitive guy yeah he has a very interesting backstory in life um and I think you know there's there's also there's like Everyone has to grade people and put people in order and lists and stuff like that. And and uh, some some slash many people are saying, you know, like of all the professional wrestlers to ever transition into acting, that that he's doing he's doing it the right way and the best way. And although there are there may not be the right way to do anything, I, I tend to agree. I think that he's he's approaching the world of acting very humbly. He knows that he has a lot to learn. He knows that he doesn't have a lot of time to do it and he's willing to take 
roles on different scales to make sure that he's in the room with the the, the best people. And yeah. I think that's very, very smart. He Somebody asked him about working with Denny Villeneuve recently, and he said, like, I love working with Denny. He gets the best out of me. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, that's all you can ask for. Right. Like as somebody who understands, like, I want to grow, I want to, you know, he's, he is doing everything in his power to get close to and work with some of the greatest auteurs on the planet. Like I would be very surprised if he doesn't end up in like a Robert Edgar's film or like he, he seems like primed to be in that space. Right. Um, I, I would be very surprised if we don't see him getting more and more uh, dramatic acting roles based on this film. But also I know in Dune part two, he has a much increased role in that sure. movie. Yeah. So this could I mean, be a he, really good year for him, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was great. I and mean, he was great in army of the dead. He had a very dramatic ish role in that. And yep. you know, he's got, he's a great guy and he, you know, he's a fellow Filipino. So gotta love him. And he's also, he's also half Filipino like me. So gotta love him for that too. I think the only thing I, I would say is uh, the reason this didn't cross past three and a half stars is I didn't love the 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 way the movie ended. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't like the last five minutes, but like I, I don't know how you end this film, right? Like it, it, the I know that M Night shifted away from the the ending of the book, um, and and so he had to make new choices. I don't know what I wanted, but I didn't feel mm-hmm. satisfied by the finale, um, which. Again, I'm now trying to review a movie I didn't that we didn't see, um, right. but I, I know I walked out of the theater like God. I, the 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 96 minutes that led up to that last five minutes, I was really on board with. Um, it's it's almost like the last night in Soho problem for me of like I really absolutely think this movie is doing everything up to the last eight minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like similarly here. I, I'm I'm I wish that this had a a stronger closeout with a more definitive answer for what we were supposed to take away. Um, I I think it's a very like the ending is sad and doesn't declaratively say anything. And I think that's the only component of this film. I was a little sad by. Yeah. Uh, can we, can we go into like spoiler land? Can we, if you're listening to this, we're going to, can I'd like, I'd love to just go into major spoil spoiler land. So if you're don't want to, if you don't want to know too much about the movie more than then press pause or fast forward till we please ask you to rate and subscribe and give us five star ratings and everything like that. But so spoilers, spoilers. Here we yeah. go. So, so yeah. So these four people come because um, the couple has to kill one another to stop the apocalypse right the, the family has to make a choice to kill yeah. one of the one of the, the family members yeah yeah and, and if and if they don't do for every time that they're asked to make the choice if they don't make it one of the four people who have come to them is killed by the other ones yes uh and then something bad happens now there's allusions to a message board there's allusions to visions that people see yep I thought it was really interesting how um, uh, one of the dads, I don't remember which one it's uh, Andrew who is Ben Eldridge's character. He's like a, he's like a, a civil rights lawyer, I think or uh-huh. something along those lines. And he mentions that like, there's like a new thing that happens in like the 20th century where it's like shared trauma through the internet and people start to believe things are real, even though they're not because they were fabricated on the internet. 
I thought that's a really interesting aspect of this movie. He goes to, because I feel like uh, everything that happens in the movie, you see both sides of it. Like he's like, this isn't this isn't uh, a live news broadcast that they show where a tragedy is happening. Yep. Um, th- like someone could be manipulating the three of the four of you to turn on the television at this time. Yep. Why didn't they just leave the television on all the time? You know what I mean? Um, and I think that there's enough. I think that one of the interesting things about this movie is I think that it, it, it does open the door and encourage people to have conversations about the movie, which I, which I appreciated. Yep. Um, and I think that I was, ha- you know, my wife and I saw this movie together and we, we had a nice conversation afterwards about like, well, again, spoilers, but I was like, who who won did did the world go back like did the world was the world saved because they made a choice or were they duped and did they just murder someone uh and the world would have been normal anyway so i there are things like that that i think are interesting yeah uh, about the movie and even though if you've if you stuck around, thank you for sticking around. But I I think it's worth seeing the movie. Yeah. To 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 make your own assumptions. I think visually there there are moments in this film that I like the the sequence where the two fathers in the back of Leonard's head. I think there's some really like visually stunning components of this film. The four of them standing outside and you looking through the through the the window and just seeing their feet and the weapons. Like there's some really awesome visuals that are created in, mm-hmm. in an enclosed space and the use of space, right? Like at one point, um, uh, Leonard gets shot. They, there's a Leonard's in the bathroom and they shoot through, uh, the shower curtain and you look at this window and, and, and you're like, did Leonard climb out the window? And you're like, yeah. it would probably be a Winnie the Pooh situation. Like he would yeah, get, stuck, like, no right? way. it's a yeah. small window, but you, as the uh, watching the character trying to process the room, you, you end up in this moment of like almost a little half smirk of like, you know, you'd see Batista like hanging by his waist trying to get out the window, you know? Um, mm. And I think there's some really great storytelling beats there uh, about how how to tell a story. And I think, you know, M. Night Shyamalan is, is a fantastic director, but I think what he does better than almost anybody is uncomfortable thriller level tension. Like mm. he can ramp up the tension in a scene with the smallest movement of a camera with the smallest dialogue change, right? Like there's a moment where something happens and uh, and Jonathan Groff asks, uh, says that he saw a reflection in a mirror. And, and I've heard this talked about a couple of times by a couple of different critics on podcasts. And they've asked the question, like, did you see something in the mirror in the reflection? And no one has gotten a chance to see it twice. So mm. we don't know, right? right? But just the allusion to the fact that there could, that the character believed that there was something bigger than them in the house that was moving this mm-hmm. similar to like what he did in devil or what, what is done in devil um, is, is you, you are, you're, you're questioning yourself. And I think the one thing he does really well is, is this constant questioning of like, who do you believe and is this yeah. possible and could this happen? Right? Like, yeah. I think you were alluding to that at like, you, why isn't the television on the whole time? What, you know, like, there are little things that he does on purpose to make it more complicated for you, the viewer to piece together the story, just like the characters in the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're trying to process what they're being told 
and you get to sit on the side of the people who are being told. M Night is really good at like stringing you along as a viewer. He he, you you don't get out ahead of the film, which is what I really am impressed with. Yeah, yeah, it's a. Uh, I mean, I would yeah, I would probably give this movie a three out of five, and I think it's. I think I was really I was glad I saw it. Like, I think we can both agree. It's like you. You go for Dave Batista, but you stay for the rest of the ensemble. <laughs> oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And anytime you get a chance to like pull it together, like Jonathan Groff and and Ben Eldridge in a film together, where they are an empathetic and caring couple, like they're that's that's really fantastic casting. Getting a chance mm-hmm. to see the two of them, you've seen them in other films playing different roles, slamming them into the same role in the same film as as a couple was just a it's it's inspired casting, and it's also like obviously why haven't we seen this before? Like mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're both so good at, at playing empathetic and caring humans. Wouldn't they make a really great couple on film? And, and I just think it's, it's, it's perfect. You didn't feel like you needed this. It's, it, it's a coupling we haven't seen up to this point in film, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is right. Like, so that, I think the casting of this is also really genuinely a big part of why this works. Right. Yeah, the little girl 100%. is cast perfectly right. Like without Batista sort of being the center of the film, I don't think this film works. I think the other knockers, except for maybe Rupert Grant, like really, really bring so much. I, I don't know if they did it on purpose where his character is in the film so short because and, and is sort of a gruff component of the knockers. Right. Like every other knocker seems to care and is empathetic. So mm-hmm. having him be the first one gone is is part of what I think. We, we are not supposed to care about that character. So maybe it's on purpose, you know, like we don't get yeah, invested in their story sure. at all, you know, but also, you know, like part of the, I mean, when you look at the, when you look on the other side of the, the coin where it's like, well, yeah, of course you're going to put Ron Weasley in a movie because it's Ron Weasley, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Um, I do think this is going to probably be the thing that knocks uh, Avatar the way of water out of the number one spot for the box office. That's what everyone's um, saying. Yeah. I'm, I was really surprised. I saw it at one o'clock on a Friday and there was about 15 or 20 people in my showing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised by that, but I did get to see it in Dolby cinema. So boy, the sound was awesome. Nice. <laughs> like good job. AMC uh, deciding this film should replace avatar, the way of water in your Dolby cinema locations because the knocking that like mm-hmm. just the, the aspect that's in every it's in the trailer that, the sound is so good in this film. Um, and the choice to put it in their best sound theater at AMC was, was the right choice. Mm-hmm. Kudos to Mr. Shyamalan. Yeah. Nice job. And uh, much love to the entire cast and especially Dave Batista. Yeah. Really fun. Um, this has been a great conversation. I'm really glad we chose this film. I, I tweeted that I was, I'm, I'm always in the bag for an M night Shyamalan movie, but Dave Batista is what really made the movie work for me. And, and what's awesome is the knock at the cabin, social media crew grabbed that quote and, and made a, made a, a video out of it and, and retweeted it on Twitter. So like, it's really, they're, they're doing everything they can, I think, to support this film. I think mm-hmm. the social media push has been really smart. I expect we're going to link to them when we release the podcast and, and, I, I expect that they will jump all over it. I, I'm really excited to see more people get exposed to this film and and get a chance to see Dave Batista shine. Like yeah. a, a, M Night is is the reason that people come to this, and Dave Batista is the is the question mark. Like I wonder if he's going to be able to pull it off. I think people are going to walk out of this film and be like, M Night has created a really amazing story here and adapted someone else's work. But boy, 
what did Dave Batista pull off? Right. Like, I, I think that's the conversation we're going to have a lot of over the next month. I mean, it's so funny. Cause it's like, I almost think that people shouldn't be surprised because we were saying the exact same thing when guardians of the galaxy came out. Oh yeah. We were like, Holy hell, this dude stole the show from guardians of the galaxy. Yep. And he's doing the same thing here. The, the, he works, he works his ass off and it, it shows, you know, he yep. is as I, as, as uh they're not the right the iconic is not the right word but like when you see dave batista you you see dave batista you know what i mean yeah and and even though that's the case with all the tattoos and and the the size and the way he looks the sound of his voice yeah he actually is a chameleon in every one of his movies he 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 takes on a character he's not playing dave batista yeah and that's freaking awesome and i love it yeah, he's amazing. The current numbers look like it's estimated at about fifteen million over the weekend, um, and it's it, it and eighty for Brady are going toe to toe right now to see who wins the weekend. Um, it's at fourteen million right now is the estimate, and uh, our friends uh, over at Avatar and, and Pandora are, are just around ten. So this is also a good sign for cinema and, and theater going to have three mm. films make ten million dollars or more is is a pretty good weekend, um, especially in January, like pretty awesome and, and you know closing it out with another eight million for puss in boots the last wish like this is a 50 million dollar weekend it's good job cinema and good job getting people back into theaters you know and giving people yeah. something to watch in january right like this is often looked at as a fallow period nothing good comes out and you know th- it, this is proof that you don't have to just sit on your laurels and not release something in january these movies yeah. can make good money and, and can be counter-programming to something like an Avatar The Way of Water, right? Like 80 for Brady and Knock Knock at the Cabin and last uh, Puss in Boots The Last Wish are all sort of great counter-programming to Avatar The Way of Water. I might see 80 for Brady. <laughs> uh, I think, I think looks, my mother-in-law wants to see it. I, I think she's I think seeing it, looks it right now. Super, I think it looks super charming. And yeah. those ladies are icons. They Each are. and every one of those ladies is an icon. Uh, whatever about Tom Brady. I don't care about Tom Brady. Um, well, this I'm is Brady for you Brady. Should, you should go and see 80 for Brady. I can't wait to hear about it. Uh, but thank you so much for this conversation and for, uh, for all the fun and games we had this week. We, I watched a lot of things, but I was very excited to talk to you about knock at the cabin. I, I feel like, uh, I am I'm, I'm sort of, uh, a Shyamalan Stan anyway. And, and this is one of those really like you know, just below top tier Shyamalan, in my opinion. And I think the the lack of a giant twist is what really feels like a twist, right? Mm. With with the premise of the film, with the trailers we saw, I think we were all expecting like the third act was going to have a really hard twist. And the fact that it doesn't is sort of the twist here, right? Like you're yeah. just left to live with what you've been told and you have to decide if it's right. And I think that is the twist, you know? Hmm. Fair enough. But let's run. Uh, it's been great to talk to you, sir. And next week, I think we're going to jump into... Do we know what we're watching for next week? No, we should talk about that. But uh, we'll watch something. <laughs> uh, look forward to figuring it out. And uh, we'll talk to you next week when we return with our mystery movie, no yeah, matter and, what that is. And again, thanks, guys, for listening. Please, 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 if you haven't already, like, subscribe, and please you know, get, shoot us a comment if you can't. Five-star... Or shoot us a comment if you can five-star reviews are really appreciate appreciated um and uh if you're listening to us like do me a favor screenshot screenshot the 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 image of it post it 
uh, tweet uh, about it and everything like that. And it'll be really great. We're trying to spread the word about Geek on Film. So, yeah. Thank you all for being uh, our fans and listening and, and sticking through to the end. We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, this has been great. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. This has been a Geek on Film podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.